From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, May 12th. Today, I'm joined by NYU's Tansi Whalen to hear why more and more private equity firms are starting to embrace impact as a path to outperformance. Hi, Tansi, and welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Brian. It's so great to be with you again. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Depending on who you ask, ESG fund managers are going too far or not far enough. In Washington, D.C., House Republicans staged a hearing with state attorneys general to explore the dangers, as they put it, of environmental, social, and governance investing. For many investors, however, asset managers aren't going far enough. A new analysis from the think tank Carbon Tracker finds that some of the largest members of the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative are heavily invested in oil and gas companies, despite their pledges to align with the Paris Agreement goals to limit global warming. On the S, or social front, less than half of asset managers use human rights and labor abuses as an exclusion screen in their ESG-designated funds. That's according to separate research from ShareAction. Hundreds of exits provide fresh evidence of Impact Alpha. Impact funds are racking up exits and putting to rest any lingering concerns about their ability to generate market rate returns. In an analysis of 230 exits from 30 market rate impact funds, nearly two-thirds met or exceeded their financial performance expectations. 80% of exits also met investor goals for impact. Social enterprises in Africa are turning carbon credits into lower-cost clean energy products for last-mile consumers. Despite real concerns about transparency and accountability in the voluntary carbon markets, carbon finance for social enterprises is playing a critical role in the just and equitable transition to a green global economy. So writes Dan Waldron of Acumen in a guest post on Impact Alpha. Waldron cites Acumen clean cookstove investees Burn and BioLite who use income generated from carbon credits to subsidize the cost of their products, bringing customers' upfront costs down by 30 to 80%. Pay-as-you-go solar companies Delight and Easy Solar receive carbon credits for selling solar home systems to low-income people who would otherwise be burning kerosene lamps for their lighting. The companies use the capital brought in from the credits to offset some of the higher cost of installing solar in rural areas. And now it's time for our feature conversation. I'm joined once again by Tansi Whalen, a professor and the founding director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. She's a guest post on Impact Alpha this week about a new report she co-authored called The Road to Responsible Private Equity. So Tansi, private equity doesn't have the greatest reputation, but more PE firms are bucking the trend and adopting more sustainable or responsible practices as a competitive edge. What do you think is driving that shift? I think private equity firms are beginning to see that there is real financial benefit. There's a real business case for embedding sustainability core to business strategy for the companies that they're investing in. I mean, their goal, if you if you look at the best PE firms, their goal is to bring operational excellence to the companies to improve valuation at exit, right? And what we're finding is that sustainability can drive total quality management. It can drive better performance in a series of ways. So bringing that expertise and skill set to your portfolio company, hopefully then um, drives better performance and better valuation multiples. So around here, we call that the impact alpha. 
Uh, but can you give us some examples of <laughs> PE firms that are uh, leading the way on this? Yeah, well, so I think there's a variety of different approaches. We have firms like KKR that are bringing employee stock ownership plans or ESOPs to their portfolio companies as a way to sort of share the proceeds with their with the employees, but also to drive better performance by the employees because they're incented to do it, right? Um, we see companies like Palladium uh, investing in diversity and equity in their own company, but also in the companies, the founders that they invest in. Um, we see a company like Towerbrook work to get all of their portfolio companies to B Corp certification in the same way that Towerbrook is because they're seeing that drive financial benefit. And then finally, there's, you know, impact related um, PE firms that are focused on specific thematic areas like water, energy, et cetera, where they're seeing an opportunity for investment in, in solutions that, um, that society needs. So speaking of that, Impact Alpha has recently been covering the news of how PE firms are piling into the clean energy transition. For example, Apollo just announced a $4 billion energy transition strategy. Brookfield is looking to follow up its $15 billion transition fund with a 20 or $25 billion fund. But there are still short-term returns to be made in fossil fuels. So what are you seeing in terms of where PE firms are placing their bets now? Yeah, I, you know, I think we see a... A schizophrenic approach. So we do see a number of firms that are seeing this as the next, I mean, the, the, the carbon transition, the low carbon transition is actually a huge transformation and investment opportunity. And we see a number of companies investing, thinking through the entire spectrum of what's going to be needed to shift that. I mean, just, just think about, for example, insurance. So there's a risk avoidance around insurance, property casualty, et cetera, around climate, but also there's a whole lot of new installations, microgrids, charging stations, wind turbines that require new insurance products, right? So there's all kinds of interesting upsides here. So we're seeing that. But then we also are seeing private equity, which has less transparency, purchase the dirty assets of public companies um, where they can take them out of that public, public scrutiny and, you know, probably make quite a bit of money off of it in the short term. So we see both. Gotcha. Now, NYU Stern has come up with a framework for responsible PE investing. Can you walk us through what's in that framework? Yeah. So we are looking at um, sort of the main categories. And we did this work through talking to GPs and LPs. Just just a quick there for our listeners. Uh, GPs are the general partners of private equity firms and LPs are the limited partners, uh, the, the folks that the asset allocators that invest in the private equity firms. Perfect. Thank you so much. So um, we want to understand things like um, how you're treating your human capital. Are you using financial engineering inappropriately, right? In other words, are you over leveraging your companies or playing around with your subscription line of credit? Um, what about your societal impact? How are you assessing that? How are you driving that? Um, what about strategy and innovation? Are you seeing sustainability as an opportunity to really improve the operations of the company? Um, so we're looking then look more deeply at kind of what, what constitutes good governance, what constitutes a, a, a smart embedded sustainability strategy. Um, are you looking at the full life cycle of your investment, right? So after you've sold at exit, what happens to all that sustainability work, right? Um, are you selling to someone who's going to continue to build on that? 
Um, is there accountability for your own performance related to sustainability? Are you building that in um, to the work? Uh, so, you know, really a, um, a comprehensive assessment, both at the general partner level, the investment uh, asset managers, but also at the portfolio company level, right? Because you want to look in both places. Um, and we worked quite closely with a number of PE firms, um, Invest Industrial being one who's doing a lot of really interesting work with their portfolio companies to bring sustainability strategies and operational excellence to them um, and looking at kind of how, how you actually do that, looking at these various um, components. And so the report itself has a lot of good examples that companies can learn from. Now, the private equity industry is enormous. Uh, around the world, there are some 10,000 private equity firms that have ownership rights in something like 40,000 portfolio companies, which in turn manage 20 million employees. So these private equity leaders are largely operating under the radar in some ways. Uh, not many people know about them if you ask the average person on the street. But more regulation is coming, including disclosure on private equity fees and fund strategies. What do you think about the proposed legislation that's coming? I think that there, it's very important that there's more transparency. I mean, private equity, at least some aspects of it, is getting a pretty poor reputation, and that's not good for the industry, right? So I think, as always, while industry doesn't like regulation, it's important to ensure that you don't have any kind of bottom feeding behavior, um, and that can help drive better performance and engagement for the rest of the industry. Um, I also think that those companies that are really recognizing that they need to get in front of it are going to outperform those that drag their feet and just sort of approach it as a, well, let me do the little bit that I, is needed to meet it from a compliance perspective. Those who see this as really an opportunity for competitive advantage are the ones who will win. Now, the private equity industry, though, as a whole, as you said, industry doesn't like regulation and they have fought some of these rules, which is natural. Uh, what do you think the impact of the increased regulation will ultimately be? Well, there's, you know, there's regulation. We're looking at a variety of different things, right? So in, in Europe, we're looking at CSRD, which will apply to private firms of a certain size um, that have any type of presence in Europe. We have European PE firms also, you know, having to report on societal impact and other types of measures. So um, I think one potentially negative unintended consequence is that and I'm seeing some of this, that PE firms start to manage solely to reporting metrics. So in other words, pick a couple of SASB reporting metrics, which are basically outcome, and, excuse me, output process-based metrics. So they don't actually drive change or better financial performance. I just say, yeah, hey, like, you know, let's report on these three or four things that are material and call it a day, as opposed to what are the material issues for this company? <laughs> ESG issues, how do we build them into our business strategy? What are our key performance indicators to ensure that we're driving better performance you know, from an environmental and social perspective, but also from a profitability perspective, so that we can then um, demonstrate improvement at exit and map them against the reporting metrics that we need to report on due to these new regulatory frameworks. And do you think it should be a one-size-fits-all, or it should be by sector or by size? Where, where do you see that playing out? Um, in terms of strategy and KPIs, it has to be sector and company specific. I mean, you know, what what you're going to focus on in the apparel sector is going to be different than what you focus on in the service sector is going to be different than what you focus on in a, a hard to abate industry, right? So um, we have through our, we have something called our return on sustainability investment um, methodology, which helps companies understand which 
uh, the material issues and you know based on SASB in their sector, but then shows you what are the different types of strategies and practices that you can put in place that will drive better financial performance. So you understand the value drivers, which range from operational efficiencies. So think about this: you're buying more than you need to pay to dispose of what's left over. It's the ultimate in an operational inefficiency, but companies tend to think about it as a compliance issue, right? Not an operational inefficiency where they might be able to get more benefit, or innovation and growth, or risk mitigation, or employee engagement and productivity. These are all things that can drive better performance. Now, there are so many examples of private equity firms having highly leveraged strategies that have driven once iconic companies to bankruptcy. Can you give us a sense of the influence of the private equity industry and why the way they invest in the practice they adopt are so important for people to understand? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, and this is not true for all PE, but one way for private equity to make a lot of money quickly is to load up the um, portfolio company with a lot of debt to which you then you don't uh, have the company actually use you take most of it and give it to yourself and to your um, investors uh, so it's not put back into the company uh, you get tax incentives that you don't put back in the company you keep <laughs> so a series of challenges and then you avoid R&D investments. You would avoid, like if a company needs a pivot, you may not make that pivot. So the company is basically a walking zombie. You also see, um, and we, we actually have a case study on that where we looked at pulp and paper company that was just basically destroyed through two successive um, private equity ownerships. Um, but then you also see this in areas um, with significant societal impact. So we have a researcher at Stern, Sabrina Howell, who's been looking at, for example, nursing homes and private equity ownership of nursing homes. When PE own buys, and she's been looking at its scale across the country, um, mortality rates go up, recidivism goes up, nurses get fired, uh, so the personnel go down, and the costs of the stay go up. So all the things that are going to work financially for the company improve, right? They've reduced their costs, they've increased their revenue, but the outcomes for the stakeholders are horrible. <laughs> but PE is managing to the financial outcomes, not the health outcomes. And so that is a real problem for certain types of industries. Now, you have covered uh, some of this in your 100-plus page report, The Road to Responsible Private Equity. Um, and you say that that's just the first phase of your research. What is next? Yeah, so right now we're working on two tools. We've been following up the report with more outreach to general partners and limited partners, as you explained before. Um, and what we've identified for the private equity firms is the design of a tool that helps them in um, due diligence phase assess what the material issues are, uh, ESG issues are for that company, what the potential strategies and practices are, and what the potential value drivers are, and gives them a way to kind of assess and do a heat map around the impacts. Then in the 100 days, let's say they go ahead and purchase the company or invest in the company. During their first 100 days, they will work on a plan, right, to improve the valuation of the company and things they're going to be focusing on. So we give them a second phase of the tool that helps them go in and identify which strategies from a sustainability perspective are going to make the most sense for them to work uh, with their company on and sort of um, help with investments to, to do that and to build um, better performance in the company as a result. For the LPs, um, the invest institutional investors and others, we're working on a tool that would help them better assess and track an, an, um, private equity firm performance. What we find now is they've got a 500 question 
questionnaire, 500 question questionnaire that um, they use from uh, ILPA, um, which is the, uh, how do you, do you want me to, I've forgotten how to spell it out, but <laughs> the institutional <laughs> investors, yeah, um, group, and uh, that also has UN principles for responsible investment questions in it. But what we find is the LPs don't really look at it after it's been filled out. The GPs don't hear any questions back, and yet they have to fill out many, many of these. And there isn't anybody really looking at their performance against their ESG metrics after that initial due diligence of the LP of the GP. So we're working on some tools that can get more specific about that and hopefully drive better accountability. Um, so those are some of the things that we're working on in the next. And then the other point that the other one that we're working on is a guide for portfolio companies um, and how to embed sustainability core to your business strategy. Uh, but back to that that tool, though, I guess the question is, if a, if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around, does it make a sound? And if, if a GP fills out a 500-question survey and no one uses the data produced by that, you know, is it, is it worthwhile for anybody involved? Well, that's, the, that's absolutely a fundamental question. And I think this is, as I alluded to earlier, one of the challenges we're seeing is if we approach this solely as a reporting exercise, it doesn't drive any performance benefit, and it actually just drives a lot of wasted time and effort. So, which isn't to say that some of these questions aren't incredibly important. They are. And we went through and sort of pulled out 90 of them that we felt were the most important, which where we're now developing this kind of heat map, um, again, for the, for the LPs that they can use and ways to look at what we would call critical nonconformities, things where you shouldn't move ahead or things where you could move ahead, but you really want to see them um, report to you on how they're improving their performance over time um, and putting in place ways that they can do that better. So I, I think part of this is just, it's very new um, for the LPs and they're not necessarily set up to, to track and understand uh, the metrics um, yet, right? So I, I, but I agree with you. It's a lot of time and effort if people aren't paying attention. And and to that, uh, for you know, tracking these metrics and and tracking the performance, how do you then align that with actual incentives uh, and and think about financial incentives for adhering to uh, these kind of responsible practices? Yeah. So increasingly, we're seeing in the public market space that twenty to thirty percent of your KPIs on which you're compensated are now in ESG. I mean, this is becoming more common. Um, and I think this is very critical as well from a governance perspective for both the PE firms and the portfolio companies that they are moving forward on a set of, and again, I want to stress not just reporting metrics, but sustainability KPIs that will drive improvement at the company and drive value at the company um, versus sort of a process-based approach. Yeah, not just checking the box or ticking right. ticking the box, but actually uh, using the exercise to improve the valuation of the company and the overall performance. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tansi Whalen, uh, from the Center for Sustainable Business at NYU. Uh, really fascinating, and we look forward to your future research. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure to, uh, to, to write the post and a pleasure to talk with you as always. That's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Tansi and our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Are you ready to try Impact Alpha? Sign up for Impact Alpha open, free, directly at impactalpha.com. If you want to go deeper, you can grab an annual subscription and get full access to Impact Alpha, including the award-winning morning brief and our popular Agents of Impact calls. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. 
I'm Brian Walsh. Be sure to check back for next week's Impact Briefing. Until then, take good care.